0: Hi everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host Stephen Siegel, and today we are on new books in Jewish studies and new books in Eastern European studies and new books in literary studies, with our guest, Amelia Glazer, who is coming to us from California. Amelia, thanks for joining us today.:
1: Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's a pleasure.
0: So uh, we will be talking today about Amelia Glaser's new book. It is called Songs in Dark Times, Yiddish Poetry of Struggle from Scottsboro to Palestine, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. A little bit about Professor Glaser. um, She is Associate Professor of Russian and Comparative Literature at the University of California, San Diego, where she also directs the Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies and Jewish studies programs. Her work lies at the intersection of Russian, Jewish, and Ukrainian literary culture, and she has written about the relationship of these three groups in the territory of Ukraine in the 19th and 20th centuries. Professor Glazer is the author of Jews and Ukrainians in Russia's Literary Borderlands, Northwestern University Press 2012, and the editor of Stories of Himelnitsky, Competing Literary Legacies of the 1648 Ukrainian Cossack Uprising, Stanford University Press 2015, and with Stephen Lee, another new book, Common Turn Aesthetics, published by University of Toronto Press 2020. Uh, finally, um, Professor Glaser is also a translator, and she has translated Proletpin America's Rebel Yiddish Poets, published by the University of Wisconsin Press 2005. So I want to get started right away with this um, wonderful book, which is also an anthology of of amazing um, Yiddish poetry in in both Yiddish and English. Um, Would you like perhaps to to start um, by reading a passage from your book, Amelia?
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Stephen. Yeah, I I sometimes like to read just the, the very opening paragraph of the book because I think it gives a sense of who these people were that I'm writing about. I'm talking in the book about a very specific um, type of poet, uh, a, a poet on the far left who, was, who had a, a, a strong enough Jewish background that they were writing about Jewish themes, but applying them to other groups. Um, so I'll, I'll read my opening, which introduces you to one of these poets. Uh, okay. Aaron kurtz 1891 to 1964, was a teenager when he left his Lubavitcher Hasidic family to join the circus. Neither an acrobat nor a magician, Kurtz traveled as a circus and theater hairdresser, and at 20, he made his way to the United States where he joined the Communist Party and eventually became, by some accounts, the leading proletarian Yiddish poet. Kurtz breathlessly embraced varying forms and broad political content, combining the fragmentation and declarations of the Russian futurists with the self-reflective empathy of the American Yiddish introspectivists. In one poem, He imagines a Soviet blacksmith's torrid love affair in his smithy. In another, he retells the contents of a letter from a young nurse in the Spanish Civil War. Quartz's poems, laced with fragments of prayers and party shibboleths, do not neatly fit into an American-Jewish narrative of shtetl memory. Similarly, Quartz's ethos remains an enigma. His poems of justice and tolerance belie his rigid adherence to the Communist Party. He wrote a birthday poem to Stalin, in December of 1949, when rumors about the imprisonment of the leading Soviet Yiddish writers were already circulating. This book is an attempt to make sense of courts and his fellow party-aligned Yiddish poets in North America, as well as in the Soviet Union. These poets, to varying degrees, put their faith in a future liberating world revolution at a time of rising nationalist movements. So that just gives you a little bit of a taste of the, the characters, if you will, in this book. And they really were characters. They, you know, each of the writers that that um, that enters even marginally uh, this story was a writer who had been through a series of personal transformations and geographical transformations. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and what would you say drew you to their idealism? I think we're talking about a generation of poets, right? So um, could you sort of give us a framework for when they were alive and maybe what their literary politics were and, and how you were motivated to study them?
1: Yeah. So this was a generation of poets that um, that really came of age around the time of the revolution. They were born, um, they tended to be born in the 1890s, sometimes in the very, very early 1900s. Um, and they, uh, you know, they would have been in their early twenties or around twenty, maybe not even quite twenty in 1917, and uh, and this, you know, this was by no means the entire generation, but there was a very large group of writers. In at that moment, across languages, but I'm particularly interested in Yiddish writers who were absolutely taken by the revolution and were ready to help to make it happen throughout the world. And they were the writers that I see as aligned with the Communist International, the Comintern, that was founded by Lenin in 1919. Um, certainly, they were they were bitter wars over ideology. So I, I don't at all mean to say that everyone was a Stalinist at this point. Mm-hmm, right. But, uh, but I'm interested in the poets who were because I because I find them so complicated. On mm-hmm. the one hand, it's very easy to dismiss them. They got a certain part of history wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, they were incredibly idealistic and they were the poets who were ready to renounce the ideology of, of nationhood and nationalism, even the kind of soft nationalism that, that one absolutely understands <laughs> at that mm-hmm. point, in favor of fighting for uh, the workers of the world. And what I see these writers doing, which is so different from um, most Yiddish poetry just a little bit before they started writing, uh, is, is I saw them continuing to use Jewish themes, but applying these Jewish themes to other groups, really kind of shifting and renouncing their claim to group identity in order to bring others into the fold. So they were actively changing what it meant to be we or us,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> from we Jews to you know we we workers of the world, we who are struggling, we oppressed, and they were very eager to uh, to find commonalities between between Jews and Black Americans, Jews and Spanish Republicans who were fighting in the Spanish Civil War, uh, Jews and Chinese workers, um, and so I you know I created this book. Really, I built uh, six chapters, each of which focuses on a different national minority that these uh, that that some of these writers were identifying with.
0: Mm-hmm. And could you start maybe with some of your characters and and how they begin to appeal to this um, proletarian internationalism? Are are they publishing things individually or are they around journals or? I guess I, I'm particularly interested in in some of the figures that maybe our audience will be less familiar with. They might know the names of Alexander Bloch and Vladimir Mayakovsky from the Russian modernist tradition, but um, perhaps you could introduce some of them to start um, from from the Yiddish canon and then maybe some who are lesser known.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I, I actually opened the entire book with, uh, well, I just read to you the very opening of the book, but I, I opened the, the um the longer introduction to the book with a poem by the Yiddish American modernist Hay Levick. And the book features poets who were on the far left, who were members of the Communist Party, like Aaron Kurtz, who were representatives of the American Communist Party. And then I also have these complicated figures who published in party aligned journals but broke with the party. At, mm-hmm. at crucial moments, and those breaks help to define what was going on at the time. So I, I see this study very much as a literary history in that sense, and in uh, in some senses as a salvage literary history because I'm trying to salvage uh, remnants, right? Pieces of poems that we uh, that we don't know, poems that have either been avoided or they've just been overlooked because people say, okay, there's another party aligned poem. <laughs> We know mm-hmm. there are a lot of those, and I and I went back and I I wanted to take these seriously as a way of better understanding the transnational history of uh, of internationalism of this very amorphous um, field of international. So this this poet hey Lavik is uh, he appears in almost every chapter, and mm-hmm. he left the party. Um, he was never actually a, a member, but he left the party aligned journal. Uh, or, or daily newspaper, the Freiheit, a couple of times, first over a major rift that took place in 1929 that uh, that dealt with the way that different, different Jews uh, received a week-long uh, wave of violence in Palestine.
0: And mm-hmm. the party
1: officially recognized this violence uh, as a, an Arab uprising, as a kind of workers' uprising. And many writers left the, uh, the, the communist press because they felt that it was a pogrom. And Levick was one of them. Levick was one of the leaders of that group that left the Freiheit. But then he would later go back and publish in it again during the Spanish Civil War. So there were there were there were these writers that went in and out. Um, mm-hmm. And I opened the entire book with a poem by Hey Levick about Sacco and Vanzetti which yes. he writes in 19, uh, 1927. Well,
0: I, I mean, I it would be wonderful if you could read some of that. I'm, I'm really interested in the events that Levek experiences. Um, and as you as you argue, Sacco Vanzetti becomes a kind of password. And, and, and if you could maybe explain some of that too, there's this moment where yeah. big events like the Sacco, Sacco Vanzetti trial become um, inspirations for Yiddish modernists who are not necessarily towing the party line, as you say all the time, but maybe even are leaning away from Soviet Marxism toward toward anarchist traditions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's and and it, it's all very mixed up. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, a, a writer like like Levick was, you can't consider him a right wing writer. He wasn't. He was on the left and he continued to declare that over and over again. But he was absolutely among the first to reject Stalinism when he saw it getting out of hand. Um, oh, why don't I just read a little part of that poem because sure, it'll help please. me to uh, uh, to talk about some of the tropes that I'm that I'm noticing in these in these poems. And I, I have to correct myself. I said that he wrote it in 1927. That was the year that uh, and Vansetti were put to death. They were executed in Boston, but yes. he wrote the poem for their site, for their one the one year anniversary of their death in 1928. And the poem is mm-hmm. actually called in Yiddish a Yor Sakho or a Sakho Vanzetti Year. So I'll just read the very beginning of this poem and I'll read it. Why don't I read it first in English and then I'll read this short excerpt in Yiddish so that you get a sense of the Yiddish in your ear. Today, like last year, the hangman's feet dance the Charleston the world over. Fuller's bite hasn't even been covered with a scab. The same evil from accuser to accuser, the same fist, the same power, oh, we won't forget how the clock hands dripped with blood that August night. And it, and it goes on, but I'll read the uh, just that same bit in Yiddish. Heit azoi vi fari joven, charlestonin iberderer dem Talienzfis. Siz noch afiele nit verzeugen geworen, mit kein heitel der fullerischer Bies. Dasselbe schlecht von Kategor zu Kategor, der selber foist, dieselbe macht. und mir vergessen nie die weisers von zeger. So hopefully in my reading of the Yiddish, mm-hmm. you pick up a little bit of the rhyme that uh, that Levick is inserting into his poem. Uh, but you might also, those of you who are Yiddish speakers might pick up on a, um, a, one word that's particularly marked in this poem. And that's this word kategel, which I've translated accuser. And mm-hmm. kategel represents what I have called in the book, a password. This is a word from uh, from the Talmud. In the Talmud, it's, it it comes from Greek, right? It comes from the same root as the word category, kategor. But a kategil is a prosecutor in um, traditional uh, Hebrew, but it became in Yiddish a, uh, a kind of a prosecuting angel. And so mm, the kategil, when, when Levik uses this word, the kategil, he's talking about this, this, Potentially evil prosecuting angel who threatens, uh, who has threatened Jews throughout history, and at this point threatened and Vinceti. And so that I read that word as a password, which was a a term, a kind of key that writers would use to give access to a uh, a Jewish closed community to other groups. But these passwords could also could also work the other way. They gave access to other groups to the experiences of marginalized others to Jews. So that what readers are being urged to do is see beyond the individual community, to identify via these words that are um, that are, are loan words from other languages or mm-hmm. loan words from uh, you know from from Jewish languages to a uh, to a non-Jewish context, these become ways in to another to a another community.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm particularly interested, um, Amelia, in, in how you describe this as a form of translocation, I, I guess, or, or maybe deparochialization is another word that you use um, in order to describe this internationalizing or universalizing tendency. So I guess my next question to you in your examples um, would be to go through events like the Sacco-Vanzetti trial. Um, I think 1929 is a very significant moment in your book. And, um, you know, other um, historians have called it a sort of year, year zero for, um, for Israeli-Palestinian relations and so forth, or, Ar- or Arab-Jewish relations. Um, may- maybe you could explain why this is so important and how these passwords develop out of
1: particular
0: moments like, like those.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, and first, let me, let me back up for a second to um, this idea of translocation. And this is a term that I use for uh, the tendency among writers to use a, a, a text or a reference from Jewish tradition and to, uh, to relocate that or translocate that into a tradition that includes another group. Uh, Mm -hmm. An identifiable other uh, ethnic group, usually an ethnic minority, some sort of marginalized group. Um, And I deal in the book with um, Sakwan Vonsetti as the beginning. And then I talk about uh, uh, East Asia and particularly Chinese workers in the the writings of Esther Schumacher. I uh, have an entire chapter devoted to 1929, which uh, which I'll talk about in a second, sure. and uh, and then uh, Scottsboro, which was the uh, you know horrific long trial of uh, of nine young black men who were framed uh, for a crime that they didn't commit in the South and uh, the Spanish Civil War, and then I I end with a couple of chapters where what Yiddish writers are doing with passwords is talking about Jewish struggles through other people's struggles. So the penultimate chapter is about Ukraine, and it's Mm -hmm. about the Soviet Yiddish writer, David Hofstein, who translates a classic Ukrainian writer, Taras Shevchenko, into Yiddish. Um, But what he's doing with his passwords is talking about some of the commonalities between the past suffering of Ukrainians under the Tsar, and, uh, the current struggles of, of Jews in the Soviet Union. And I end with a chapter on, uh, on the, the exodus from the party and beginning in 1939 with the Hitler-Stalin pact. Um, and as you know, from my little introduction, not everybody left in 1939. Exactly. People like who stayed on. But the fifties. Kind of, yeah. I mean, he was, he, he never left. He died in the sixties. He never left the party, but um, many people did, especially with the Hitler-Stalin pact. And so my last chapter deals with a, a key example of a, of a poet, Moshe Nadir, who had been a very vocal Advocate for Soviet policy, who um, who then apologized, kind of went around apologizing to his friends and apologizing in his poems, um, and that's really a, a chapter about uh, the return to one's own uh, ethnic group, the retreat back into national particularism, which is maybe inevitable given what was going on, but is mm-hmm. also the end of this of this moment of, of reaching out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I yeah so so the the translocation is this important act that these poets were performing. It's a form of what um, translation theorists, not necessarily working in literature, call localization. This idea that we uh, you know we we might localize a, um, a story. <laughs> From let's say, you know, they're eating borscht in Russia and then suddenly they're eating chicken noodle soup in the United States or something like that. It's not always that extreme. Um, yeah. I, I actually started to think a lot about localization when I was working with a, uh, a graduate student of mine, Steven Mandeberg, who has since gone on to uh, to finish his PhD and, and to start teaching. Um, but Steven was a was a student of mine who was working on the localization of video games. And, and I, I promise that this actually is closely is, is <laughs> related to the book. Um, what I was really fascinated by in, um, in what he'd found is that there, there were these fans of Japanese video games who didn't like the extreme localization of video games for an American audience. So you would have, uh, you know, the person eating sushi in the video game in Japan, and then it would turn into a hamburger or a hot dog. Um, and then there are these fans that would relocalize things in order to keep traces of the original. And as I worked with him on this, this communication <laughs> PhD, I thought, wow, this is what my poets are doing as well. They're really localizing poems about pogroms in Eastern Europe and turning them into poems about the uh, the suffering of Chinese workers, for example, in Shumiatra's poetry, or the mm-hmm. suffering of the Italian anarchists in Hei Levick's Sacco and Vansetti poems. Yeah. Could, could
0: you give us an idea of of how your poets address this challenge of, I mean, not only localization, but maybe, you know, a sort of globalization of empathy, I guess I, I would kind of call it if I'm paraphrasing you. Um, because there, re- I mean, there really is this urge that you cover in a lot of your chapters, including the, the 1929 question of Palestine, mm-hmm. um, through Scottsboro to, to get you know, not just outside of the old kind of shtetl tradition, but really outside of, of even Soviet internationalism in the experimental nineteen twenties. And and I'm just curious, mm-hmm. maybe if you could give us some examples from um, some some of your colorful characters how they begin to do that through their um, through their poetry.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, in the ne- wait what you saw in like the nineteen tens and the nineteen twenties in modernism, and this is. It's, it's a wonderful moment in Yiddish poetry because you have, you have writers who are so eager to break all rules that modernism takes off in all different directions. But at the very center of Jewish modernism at that point, and I'm talking about really from, let's say, Chaim Nachman Bialik's 1903 Pogrom poem, In the City of Slaughter, to the poems of the of the Ukrainian Civil War, the First World War, that were also often about pogroms, you have poets using um, Christian imagery. Suddenly, taking I don't know, Jesus on the cross is is right there in Poland in the middle of this pogrom, and there was this exploration of all sorts of modernist tropes, from free verse to uh, you know to experimentation with form. And uh, and poets, but poets were still really focused on this horrible thing that had been happening to Jews, <laughs> namely pogroms. And yeah. what I see happening in the 1930s, because I'm really writing about poets who, they, you know, if they may, if they were give or take a couple of years from 20 in 1917, they um, they really came of age as poets in the late 20s, early 30s. And they were writing about the same kind of suffering, actually sometimes reading and rewriting these poems of pogrom suffering, but because they were uh, absolutely convinced by the rightness, the correctness of internationalism, of abandoning one's nationalist sentiments, they were rewriting these poems about other groups, about non-Jewish groups, often in very creative ways. So these edgy Christological motifs that you see come out in the mm-hmm. pogrom poems of uh, of, uh Greenberg or even Peretz Markish, who um, you know, later would become a Soviet poet, mm-hmm. uh, you then see applied to other groups, especially in poems about lynchings,
0: uh, yes. for example.
1: So you will have these, these poems about lynchings that, that are very, very similar to pogrom motifs of a decade earlier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the most, you've mentioned the 1929 chapter, which was uh, in some ways the hardest chapter to write because it's a chapter that is politically so fraught even today, um, but was one of the most interesting chapters to write. I, I begin that chapter with a, um, with a reworking of the poem in, a city of, in the city of slaughter by Chaim Nachman Bialik by a young Soviet poet named Moisha Taif. And Teyf actually borrows the themes from Bialik and is in conversation with Bialik. But the city of Slaughter is no longer Kishinyov, where a sort of the first you know, 20th century pogrom, major 20th century pogrom broke out in 1903, but it's Palestine. And the perpetrators are no longer anti-Semitic uh, Slavic pogromchiks. They're Jews who together with the... Uh, with the British are marginalizing the Palestinian Arabs. Mm-hmm. And it's a, uh, it's a fascinating poem. He published it. This was a, uh, a Minsk-based 25-year-old Soviet poet. Who oh, wow. Published <laughs> it. Yeah, who published it in the, in the New York-based Freiheit. Mm-hmm. And I have never found a republication or anthologizing of this poem in any of Tafe's other work. My sense is that he was, you know, he moved on and he later would become even a little bit of a Zionist, as many, many Soviet poets became uh, later in their lives. Um, So it's this one off. It was something that he published almost as an illustration of the events of the time. But it was definitely one of those poems where I was like, I knew I wanted to write about 1929. I knew there was a lot of stuff on 1929. I'd found a lot of poems that I needed to include. But I hadn't found the perfect translocation of a pogrom poem into a poem (laughs) about Palestine. And then I, you know, going through the microfilm of the morning freiheit, this daily communist American Yiddish paper, I suddenly hit on this poem and was like, oh my God. And it's like Moisha Tave heard me and went back and wrote this poem for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. And 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 I w- I wanted to say also just as a quick plug, I'm really glad that Harvard University Press included the appendix with your translations both, you know, from the original in Yiddish and then the English. And so you know anyone can read Tavf sing Desert Wind, you know both in the original Yiddish and and see your translation into English.
1: I am um, too. I was I was so pleased that my editor was in was in favor of my doing that, and I, I think it it makes the book um, <laughs> that much more useful to people because it uh, you know these these poems are not easy to find. They're not easily mm-hmm. anthologized. I I went back and forth about whether to include the Yiddish original in the original. Uh, Yiddish characters Hebrew characters or in transliteration and I opted to go with transliteration because I wanted to make them uh, legible to people who uh, might recognize some of the words but um, but wouldn't be able to read the Hebrew characters
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well I wanted to ask the next question um, really about the Scottsboro poems and this translocation into an American context so you know it, you're you're Drawing a divide between the 1920s and 1930s, I think, in certain ways. Um, And there are writers' unions like Peretz's Yiddish Writers' Union, Mm -hmm. um, and also writers like Kurtz, who are drawing distance from Zionist symbols and tropes and traditions. So, you know, what is the connection then to, let's say, African American literature? And how then does Scottsboro become, as you say, a, a password or a shibboleth or a way of? Evoking empathy among um, Jewish readers in an American context, and then among um, readers in a larger public.
1: Yeah, well, this is a—it's a good order to be going because 1929 happened, and the—and uh, when I say 1929, I'm referring to uh, the violence that took place in late August. Of 1929, it started actually in Jerusalem around the Western Wall, but spread. and the, the most famous, most most horrifying episode in, in 1929 was in Hebron, in the town of Hebron, where a number of Jews were of innocent Jews were massacred, were massacred uh, including in a, in a yeshiva some elderly people and so forth. Um, and 1929 absolutely split the left. You had the exodus of writers like Heylavich. I- Right. Um, and uh, and others Raboy uh, and uh, and Raisin Avram Raisin these were these were writers who were in a class of their own they were already famous Yiddish writers when the Freiheit the daily Freiheit which means freedom was founded in uh, in the early 1920s they it was a huge coup that they managed to recruit these canonical living Yiddish writers to publish in their pages but these were not writers that were like Firmly convinced Communist Party members or even necessarily firmly convinced fellow travelers. They were interested. They believed mm-hmm. in general in the cause of revolution, but they weren't necessarily going along with the party line. And mm-hmm. a writer like Levik, Levik had actually traveled in the mid-1920s to the Soviet Union and even wrote to his wife from the Soviet Union that he kind of liked it there and maybe should they should think about moving. But he but I don't think he ever really seriously thought about, about joining. The struggle from the Soviet standpoint. I I, I have a hard time imagining that um, they were the they were the first to leave, and these were writers who were not necessarily proletarian writers. <laughs> they were mm-hmm. uh, they were important writers. levick had been uh, as a Bundist had been sent to Siberia and had escaped from Siberia to the United States. He had this very dramatic history as a revolutionary, but but these were these were. Famous modernist writers, and they were a little bit older than the proletarian writers. Mm, so the Freiheit published, they probably, and, and not much. I mean, Levick was only like two years older than some of the proletarian writers, but those two years somehow made a difference. Uh, and and Raisin was much older. He was almost a generation older. Uh, so you had these two tiers. You had these really famous writers who were not willing to soil their name with the Freiheit uh, after 1929, when the Freiheit officially declared that the events in Palestine had been an uprising and not a pogrom. And then you had these younger writers who were proletarian writers. And by proletarian writers, I don't necessarily mean that they were proletarians, but they they became writers writing in um, small circulation proletarian Yiddish journals that were gathering speed in the 1920s and they wrote really about the party and about workers themes and those would be writers a little bit more in the mold of aron courts aron courts actually published in some of the modernist journals too but they were of his generation and uh, you know a little more politically active and those proletarian writers some of them left but um, or temporarily left but many of them stayed and the writers who stayed were thrown out by the 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 YL Parrott writers union they were thrown out of this this larger Yiddish writers union. So they formed their own prolet pen writers union Mm -hmm. that was mostly made up of Freiheit sympathizing Yiddish poets.
0: How, how many how many were in it, Amelia? I mean, were there like 100 or 300? Or I mean, do you have any uh, you know I- idea? I
1: should have this at the tip of my tongue. I want to say it was like closer to 50, something like that. Oh, okay. It was like 40 okay. or 50. Yeah, yeah so sorry. Was, um, official members. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's a, a really colorful character who is, uh, I, I've actually been writing about him very recently by the name of Alexander Pomerantz, who had been, he'd been one of these activists in forming proletarian journals throughout the 1920s. He was an emigre from Grodna, which is now in Belarus. And he actually moved to the Soviet Union, to Soviet Kiev for a couple of years, for three years, and uh, defended a dissertation in Kiev at the Institute of Proletarian Jewish Culture, about the prolet pen writers movement. So we have that's a lot amazing. of really good information from that dissertation. It's a highly polemical dissertation. Like everybody writes bet. a dissertation that's maybe kind of about themselves in some deep level. But <laughs> his was, like he just took this to this crazy extreme. It was all the fights that he'd gotten in and like the mean things that people had said about him and that he'd said about them. It's incredibly useful for the literary historian. My, my correct
0: I, views on everything.
1: <laughs> exactly. But it's like, you know, how exactly this, you know, this past, I don't know. No, I mean, it's a, it's a good, it's a very, very valuable resource. And uh, and Pomerantz talks a lot about the formation of that movement as a, as a movement that had been trying to be formed many times uh, in the 1920s and 1929 finally kind of made that mm-hmm. happen. Um, and the reason that I wanted to go back into that history is that you asked about Scottsboro. Yes. And when in the early 1930s, Scottsboro was at the very center of, of the leftist American consciousness, the uh, the writers from the Freiheit absolutely rallied. And of course, Scottsboro was already a, a very, very political case, not necessarily because of what it involved, because it involved this, this issue of, of institutional racism, but because the party had helped to fund the defense. And that actually made it a very, a very complicated case mm-hmm. that Strung out for years and years, because had the party not gotten involved, you know, one wonders if it wouldn't have been better for the defendants. The defendants were not communists, but the Communist Party and the International Labor Defense, which had also defended Sacco and Vanzetti, and we know how that ended. um, Mm -hmm. They, uh, you know, they uh, they split the left and they helped to polarize the American right wing. Uh, also against the defendant. So it was very complex. But mm-hmm. these writers in the communist venues absolutely jumped to uh, to position. And they published poems, just, just calling poems Scottsboro basically meant uh, these are poems about racism in America. Many of them were uh, thinly veiled imitations of poems that had been published by writers like Langston Hughes And others who were, um, you know, County Collins, who Richard, Richard
0: Wright, right? I mean, Richard
1: Wright. Yeah, there's one poem that I cite in the chapter where one of my my poets, I don't call them my poets, uh, but one of the poets uh, by the name of Runch, basically lifted a poem by Richard Wright and rewrote it in Yiddish. Uh, so this was a moment when the Height really they, they they were definitely on the um, you know the the right side of history as it were, and they uh, they published tons of poems about Scottsboro and it was it was kind of a chance to walk things back from this very polarizing moment over Palestine, which was a little bit harder to uh, to clarify. And some of the writers who had left over Palestine returned to the Freiheit during Scottsboro and started to publish poems about. The Scotsboro, the Scotsboro boys,
0: mm-hmm. and and so what happens to your? I'm mean, going to refer to them as your Yiddish writers from now I on. <laughs> what what happens to your writers vis-a-vis the Comintern and Stalin? Then through through the course of um, the 1930s, and and you know, I have in mind, of course. Um, when Zdanov declares socialist realism the the only policy and so forth, so I mean there seems to be a shift, and and one of the shifts is is to the Popular Front and and the Spanish cause. So you know how do you how do you trace that? I guess as um, socialist realism becomes sort of the the policy um, that, that Soviet writers have to abide by after thirty eight after thirty four especially.
1: Right. Right. So. So yeah, so after, after 34 and really beginning in 32, the proletarian writers movements in the Soviet Union are disbanded and, um, you know, proletarian literature, while politically exciting and important was viewed as a little bit overly avant-garde and experimental in the Soviet Union. It was viewed as maybe a little bit hard to understand. Proletarian writing, you know, when we think about groups like the Kuznitsa group and. uh, in the Soviet Union, they were writing stuff that was that was interesting and very, very modernist and maybe isn't going to speak to your average reader. And so at that point, they say, okay, we're done with all of this experimentation. We're not going to have proletarian writing anymore. We're just going to have socialist realism. And what that actually meant effectively in the Soviet Union was that some of these modernists who were a little bit older, a little more established and remained somewhat more famous, kind of won because anybody could say, "Well, now I'm going to write about a socialist realist theme" if they're writing poetry, and so writers like Peretz Markish, who was always on the margins of proletarian literature, he wasn't at the center of writing about factories. He was able to publish work about the Spanish Civil War and, you know, work about about workers and so forth in the 1930s. So the 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 move towards socialist realism wasn't necessarily. Uh, the worst thing that happened to Yiddish modernist poets, even though what it what it shows is this movement away from avant-garde experimentation, the United States was a little bit behind what was going on in the Soviet Union. So you have Alexander Pomerantz, who I just mentioned to you, defending his dissertation on American proletarian poetry in 1935, after proletarian proletarian poetry had been dissolved in the Soviet Union, but these Soviet advisors. Were able to say, well, but the dissertation is talking about the United States and it's talking about this very important American workers' movement. So American proletarian writers weren't being held to the same time frame that Soviet writers were being held to. It was still possible to be a proletarian writer outside of the Soviet Union after 1934. Uh, whereas in the Soviet Union, you know, the proletarian as a, you know movements were were no longer at the center. Not that's not to say that these writers didn't still talk about the same themes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know you have to th- there was, there's a little bit of a double vision <laughs> that I had to use in yeah. writing this book because the situation in the Soviet Union is so different from the US and it will grow increasingly different throughout the 30s. But you mentioned the Popular Front and uh, the Popular Front arose in the late 30s as a response to fascism in many ways. And this was a this was an opportunity for many of those writers that had fallen out with one another to reconcile and to move towards the same goals in the 30s. And it's not that there weren't still wars, and it's not that people weren't still really angry at each other, but especially during the Spanish Civil War, you had these conferences and writers from the Soviet Union gathering with writers from the U.S. Many of them were the same earlier modernists who had left the, uh, the Freiheit over Palestine, um, coming coming together again in 1936, 37, 38 uh, and that's you know that's a, a bit of a reconciliation, and then 1939 hits, and in 1939 uh, the Hitler-Stalin Pact drove a, a number of American left-leaning writers definitively away from the party and the party-aligned journals. Uh, in the Soviet Union, it was obviously also complicated because for the duration of the Hitler-Stalin Pact, you could no longer denigrate fascism. So there were yeah. there a few months there when Peretz Markish would have these conversations with people in places like Warsaw, and you know subtly talk about you know here we've moved from being full speed ahead um, to conquer fascism in the Spanish Civil War, and now we're supposed to be allies with the fascists. But mm-hmm. after uh, after Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, you could denigrate fascism again. So uh, that you know that awkward moment mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm.
0: And, and I would ask, you know, what is your take then on this transformation of translocation? Or I guess if I you know, could sort of simplify it, what does it mean for translators? Um, I mean, in your last couple of chapters, uh, one is a, a chapter on Ukraine called My Songs, My Dumas. And then the last one, which is about, you know, return to Shuva. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what the role of the translator becomes in this mm-hmm. universalizing culture, especially the popular front culture um, from, say, 1934 to 1939. What what you know, what then do translators do in order to build solidarity across cultures and, and goodwill? Mm hmm.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean the the reason that I use this term translocation is that it is I do see these poets. I wanted it. I wanted to use a word that was close to translation, but that was um, that was also distinct from it. And uh, what all of these chapters deal with is poets who are. Um, Engaged in an act of translation of some form, whether they're translating their own earlier poem into something about something completely different, or they're subtly translating someone else's poem into their version of Yiddish, which you see a lot in, you know, Spanish Civil War poems. You you have sort of Spanish romanceros that show up in a Yiddish form. Uh, but you also have real translators.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Translating. Actual, actual translators. Actual translators
1: who are taking um, English language or Russian language or Spanish language poems and translating them. And that was a really important act for these poets. Uh, Moishe Nadir, who was a you know, who's an important figure in, in this whole moment, had a uh, a column, not really a column, but he he frequently would publish translations in the uh, in the Freiheit. but they were often uncredited originals. So he'd translate like from an ancient Arabic song or something like that, and you'd be like, okay, what like how, <laughs> what is this exactly? Or. Um, Alexander Pomerantz in the twenties. I don't even include this example in my book, but it's a, kind of a fun example. He translates a Russian folk song into Yiddish, and he doesn't really credit the original at all. He says he says like Russian Russian style folk song, but there is an original, and he is translating it. Um, so, and and you could be a little bit fast and loose with this because it's a it's a somewhat limited readership. Uh, you also had um, endeavors like the 1925 one issue journal Spartak, which was trilingual. It was published in only one issue uh, in Yiddish, English, and Russian. There's a poem by Langston Hughes in Russian, and there's a poem by Mayakovsky. And there's like all, all of these people are translating one another and then mm-hmm. presenting them together as this, as this internationalist act. And so that was something that was exciting and that went together with uh, with what I've called proletarian internationalism in the 1930s. But then you have a, a somewhat different act of Soviet translation. And that's something that a lot of poets were engaging in and not necessarily the most flag-waving proletarian poets. A lot of these, these modernist poets who had become Soviet poets in the 1930s saw how dangerous it was to write original verse and so what they would do is translate. And, you know, you see it in Russian as well. You see Pasternak translating, you know, a book of Georgian poets or focusing on his translations of Shakespeare so as to avoid writing his own verse at the height of the Stalinist purges. Mm, and you also see yes. in Yiddish, I mean, the same thing is happening in Yiddish. You have a, a volume called um, Felker Zingen, uh, A People's Sing by by Itzik Pfeffer and David Hofstein, uh, which is just a collection of these folk songs by all of the different peoples of the uh, of the Soviet Union. And many of those translated poems, in order to completely stay on the safe side, are poems that are, you know, odes to Stalin, but in different languages being translated into one another, which is funny because they're all always already kind of the same poem to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a poet like Shevchenko, uh, sorry i like hofstein, i wanted
0: you to, i wanted you to ask i wanted you to answer a question about Shevchenko. can you talk about hofstein yeah. and, and Shevchenko and the yeah, ukrainian exactly,
1: exactly so this all fits into this moment so hofstein beginning in actually the late 20s but really uh, picking up speed in the 30s hofstein just is translating his way through Shevchenko's oof. he doesn't translate absolutely everything there's a lot there but he translates Shevchenko, and I've talked I've talked with Soviet close Soviet colleagues, post-Soviet colleagues, colleagues that, that came of age and went to school in the Soviet Union and who are now living in, in places like Kiev or St. Petersburg about this. Many people in the former Soviet Union believe that Hofstein must have been doing this because he had to, because he had the commission and he was doing it for money, and that's it. But I have to say, he translated Shevchenko absolutely beautifully. So whether or not he was just doing it for the money or just doing it so he could avoid writing his own stuff, mm-hmm. he absolutely connects with this Ukrainian romantic poet. And he finds wordplay in his Yiddish. Hofstein was, was really a poet known for his wordplay and his, his play with rhyme and alliteration, which is something that Shevchenko was also known for. And he he finds ways of of taking words from the Ukrainian and and Creating a Yiddish out of them, so you can see that he was really enjoying this as he was doing it. Uh, so you know, for example, you have this this Ukrainian word that Shevchenko is known for, um, right? The the um, broad skirted fields <laughs> from his testament, uh, mm-hmm. his uh, you know one of his his later poems, and Hofstein translates this "brytpoladika lankes." <laughs> you can hear that he manages to pick up a root that's similar to the Slavic root, uh, mm-hmm. but he creates, you know, he creates sort of a similar image with also a multisyllabic word in the Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was clearly part of that, that high Stalinist moment when it was safer for a modernist poet to translate than to write original verse. But I read these translations of Shevchenko as a chance to also talk about what it means to be a national minority living in an empire, which mm-hmm. was Shevchenko's prime concern as a freed serf living in uh, living in St. Petersburg in the early 19th century and exiled from his beloved Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and here you have uh, Hofstein, who was a, you know, he'd been advocating for continuing Hebrew teaching in the Soviet Union and these gradually seeing these cultural traditions, these Jewish cultural traditions disappear. And I, I don't think that his choice to translate Shevchenko was simply an accident, despite mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, there were also a lot of publications of Shevchenko coming out because he was he was being canonized as the official Ukrainian right. bar. And,
0: and, you know, since we're um, winding down a little bit now, I wondered if you could, you know, sort of conclude in your afterword section, your really a conclusion, um, and, and talk, say a few words about um, the poetics of, of Yiddish and especially what, what happens in the 50s and beyond to generations of Soviet Jews um, experiencing a sense of loss, but at the same time trying to recapture the values that that existed in a language of passwords, you know, whether it whether it be Yiddish or or Hebrew. But um, what happens, you know, and you've got these sections where you talk about Allen Ginsberg and mm-hmm. and you know Bernstein and so forth. Um, what's the fate of Yiddish then from the fifties and, yeah. and reflecting back to the twenties and thirties in particular?
1: Yeah, I mean, I in, in that last chapter, the, it's not really a chapter, the afterward. I, I get into the post war period just a little bit. And, um, and what I see happening in the 1930s, the, the focus of my book, is the, the development of a language to talk about non Jews and specifically non Jewish minorities in Yiddish and a way of doing that for a Jewish audience. But for a Jewish audience that wants to uh, preserve Jewish tradition. And be universalist at the same time. And I see that, I see that tradition as something that's lasting. And I'm not saying that it started with the 1930s and with the communist internationalists. I, you know, I think that there, you can you can of course go back and find Jewish mm. writers that are concerned about non-Jews before that, but it becomes such a pervasive theme in the 1930s that even when most Jews uh, following World War II most Jewish writers um, have have no choice but to turn inward and to think about the tragedy that was the Holocaust and and the genocide that had taken place you still have this tradition of thinking outward of relating one's own catastrophe to other groups and there are there are ways of um, you know bringing uh, Prayers <laughs> to other groups, and and allowing those prayers to extend to these other groups, and so I see I see a couple of different things happening um, among these writers who outlived <laughs> their generation, right? The writers who managed to live beyond World War II, beyond Stalin's purges, to write about other things afterwards. Personally, mm-hmm. I see I see writers like Tafe, who had been the uh, the poet. Uh, to write about Palestine, to create his his Palestine version of a city of slaughter in 1929, he starts writing about the Holocaust right after World War II. And his was a completely tragic fate. He lost almost all of his family. He was imprisoned twice. Uh, He writes about the Holocaust, and he ends up writing about about Israel later. Um, But, uh, you know, you still see Tafe hearkening back to some of his some of his early his earlier motifs, and that is this connection of Jewish prayer to other things. Um, and then you uh, you also have the tradition of leftism that makes its way into other languages. And you see that in Allen Ginsberg, who in, um, in his Kaddish, and this, this <laughs> afterword is, is, is using the password Kaddish, right? How does, how does Kaddish come to mean different things after World War II? In his own Kaddish, which is the most famous secular Kaddish, I think, um, he writes about his mother's communism and, uh, and the pain of her generation, which was the generation of the writers that I'm dealing with here and and he is of course a leftist but he's also digesting the leftism of his mother that had you know really been the been the end that had that had driven her to um, to to her her mm-hmm. uh, her mental illness
0: um, amelia you mentioned the, the ginsberg uh, mm-hmm. 1957 55 kaddish uh, are there other examples where you can see the afterward and, and afterlives of these writers and the universal aspects of yiddish
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you, I mean, you also see this happening in, in Russian and I bring in, in my afterward, the example of Alexander Galich, who was actually, who was also born at Ginsburg and uh, he dedicated a 1970 ballad. and he was a singer, songwriter, but also a poet, also called Kadesh to Janusz Korczak, who was this teacher, pediatrician, orphanage director um, who had accompanied his pupils to Treblinka. When the Warsaw Ghetto was was liquidated, even though he was offered the chance to save himself, uh, and it's it's another war Kaddish, um, and so you see this um, you see this term and other terms as a way back into uh, both Jewish pain and also that leftist Jewish memory, and uh, you know I mean it, it just by way of conclusion, it might be worth ending on a Kaddish that was written by um, by Aaron Quartz, who is the poet that I. That I started by talking about Quartz was this uh, Lubavitcher Hasid who left his family to join the circus and then became a communist in the United States, uh, wrote a happy birthday poem to Stalin in 1949. And he wrote a poem called Kaddish in 1963, following the Alabama church bombing that killed four young black girls. And what Kurtz does, really interestingly in this poem, is he weaves together Jewish mourning with American Black mourning. Um, and maybe it, should I just read a little piece of that? Okay, yeah, that, I, um, that I I'll, I'll just read a piece of it in English. Yiskadal v'yiskadash, face to face with Abe Lincoln, face to face with the Negro martyrs, a rabbi says Kaddish. I am not a Kaddish sayer. But today, Mama, as the world over, bitterly wept and mourned the four small black girls. I responded to the rabbi's kaddish, Omain, and I heard not the rabbi himself, not the rabbi. I heard across the world, a million of my orphans saying kaddish beneath weeping clouds. So, quartz, you know, quartz is the one that doesn't leave, or he's one of one of the small group of people that doesn't really leave. Um, but you do see him writing increasingly about Jewish loss after World War II and finding ways to connect his lifelong commitment to internationalism to this mourning that he mm-hmm. sees, sees Jews undergoing. And it's worth mm-hmm. just saying, you know, as a, as a kind of post note to uh, de court, he's a really interesting case because he married the American... Uh, English language poet. She was actually Canadian-born of Trinidadian descent. Uh, Olga Cabral. Olga
0: okay, Cabral. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. And the yeah. two
1: of them, you know, they they translated each other. Olga Cabral translated him into English, and he translated her into Yiddish. And she of was course. also writing poems about about the Holocaust, um, mm-hmm. looking in kind of from the outside. Uh, so the two, I think, uh, embody this maybe utopian fantasy that Quartz had held dear in his younger years. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, sixty seconds, tell us what you're working on now.
1: Oh well, I'm transitioning to a project having to do with contemporary poems in Ukraine and the uh, you know the the importance of translation in Ukraine over the last five or six years.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, really, um, thanks so much for speaking with us today. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on the New Books Network, and my guest has been Professor Amelia Glaser and Thank her new so book much. is called yeah. thanks yeah thanks amelia for for joining us today um i'll just plug your book it is songs in dark times yiddish poetry of struggle from Scottsboro to palestine published by amelia glazer by harvard university press 2020 congratulations again and thanks for being on the podcast today
1: thanks for having me and i'm your
0: host Stephen siegel until next time